Welcome to the Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. My guest this week is Jennifer Mendelson, journalist and resistance genealogist. Yes, she's the woman who couldn't stand the grotesque anti-immigration stance of people like Stephen Miller, so she did something about it, instead of, say, just hissing at the TV, like I did. She dug into Stephen Miller's family history, among others, and you may want to sit down for this, but she discovered his family were immigrants. Yes, immigrants who came to this country unable to speak English. Along with that news, helpful tips on how to research your ancestors, Jennifer and I bake a Ukrainian cheesecake. Jennifer recently participated in a workshop to teach how to research Ukrainian Jewish roots to raise money for Ukraine. I hope you'll consider giving to Razom for Ukraine and the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee as well. Today, we are talking, we being the royal we, I am speaking with someone I have wanted to speak to for a very, very long time. And if any of you hang out on Twitter like I do, you know the name Jennifer Mendelson because she is what we like to call a resistance genealogist, a phrase I never really knew until I put it all together and realized, Jennifer Mendelson, welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies. Um, Thank you so much for you, having me. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Today, we're going to be making a Ukrainian dish, and you'll see why, people, if you haven't been figuring out what all Jennifer and I are going to talk about. It's a cheesecake. Uh, similar cheesecakes are also made around Easter time in um, a lot of Eastern European countries. Since my Jewish grandmother had a recipe very similar to this one, I think it's just cheesecakes around the world are very similar to this. This one is a little bit drier. Then many cheesecakes, it has no crust, and it's baked in a loaf pan and covered in chocolate. So it has a lot of very positive attributes. Uh, have you ever made a cheesecake like this before? No, this yeah. the, the chocolate seems very un-Eastern European, but I love chocolate, so I was very excited. Yeah, that's why I was like, well, I mean, it may be a little drier than most, but it has, it also has raisins in it. And the first batch I made, I did not put raisins in, and then... Life being what it is, I decided to soak some raisins in rum. And I'm going to add those to the cheesecake. I'm going um, raisinless. I hope this will not cause me to be the source of discrimination. I decided no, I, I made an I, executive decision that this would be a no raisin experience. Yeah, my first experience was a no raisin experience. And I believe that I will be discriminated against because of the raisins. So I oh. think you've made the correct choice. There are a lot of people who have very strong opinions about raisins. Um, mostly negative ones. I actually enjoy raisins. I, am very, I, didn't, I didn't want a raisin chocolate experience. Oh, no, you don't like the raisinette thing? You didn't eat those in the movies growing up? Uh, I just didn't want that in a cheesecake. Do you remember going to the movies? I used to like that a lot. Have you been to What I remember since? most about the movies in like the, the mid-70s were like those, I don't know what they're called, but like they're like those puffy mint things that, they're like red and white striped, not like hard candy peppermints, but like the ones that mm -hmm. kind of like, they almost have like a spongy quality. That's what I associate with movie theaters as a little kid. And you grew up in Long Island? 
yeah okay maybe that's just the long island thing because in new jersey we didn't have anything as aberrant as that i have very frequently argue with mary trump about the virtues of queens long island and new jersey and she is very anti-new jersey and i hope you don't have feelings like that being from long island do you oh i am very new jersey friendly my father (laughs) my father who would totally have considered himself a New York City kid because that's where he was raised and went to high school and he's a Bronx kid through and through, but he was actually born in Jersey City. My grandparents lived briefly in Jersey City in the 1920s. And my grandmother, who was an immigrant, but came as a little girl, she mostly actually grew up in Northern New Jersey in and around like Teaneck, Jersey City, uh, all over the place up there. Um, So I have Jersey not Jersey roots, but Jersey connections. <laughs> Jersey connections. Um, everyone has Jersey roots, just like everyone has Brooklyn roots, I think. So the reason you are a freelance writer in your own right and do many have done many great things as a writer, but in 2018, you, you had a bit of a, a revelation, maybe, when, when they were talking about immigration policy. And for those of us who, um, well, I actually remember, because this is when I started following you, Tell us what happened to you one day in 2018. I was a freelance writer for many, many years. And quite unexpectedly, in 2013, actually, I kind of fell down the genealogy rabbit hole after having no interest in genealogy whatsoever, despite having a brother who was very interested in genealogy. Maybe that's why I wasn't interested in genealogy, because that was kind of my brother's thing. My brother, Daniel, actually wrote a very, very well-known book called The Lost, in which he traveled back to Ukraine to tease out the specific fates of six members of our family who perished in the Holocaust. And so that was really his thing. And I was appreciative of the book. And I got to go on our initial trip back to our ancestral town but I was not by any stretch of the imagination, a genealogist. Well, that all changed. I sort of accidentally fell down the genealogy rabbit hole and became really, really obsessed with genealogy and was sort of just at that place where I was thinking, this is really what I want the focus of my professional life to be. But I wasn't exactly sure how to make that leap or if that was what I wanted to do and and how I wanted to do it. But suffice it to say that I had spent several years immersed in mostly immigrant genealogy, because in my family, that's what my story is. Most of the stuff I worked on was 19th and 20th century immigration stories. And then, like, Trump came on the scene, and suddenly there was all this poisonous anti-immigrant rhetoric in the air. And what really sort of stunned me, I had this very like naive response to it, I think, which is that sort of fundamental things that I thought every single American knew about immigration. And I always used to joke, yeah. it's like, weren't you listening during the fourth grade unit that we all learned how everybody here, <laughs> except for indigenous peoples and enslaved peoples, came here on a ship from somewhere else. And suddenly there seemed to be this incredible wave of amnesia, both forgetting that and forgetting specific things like 
when my people came, they all immediately learned to speak English and they assimilated beautifully on the, the, <laughs> the moment they got off the ship, which is complete yep. and utter nonsense. And if you spend a lot of time looking at immigration uh, documents and census documents where you know what languages people spoke and et cetera, et cetera, it was just preposterous. And the more <laughs> I heard these people saying these insane things about immigration, it was just really starting to get under my skin. And it really all sort of came to a head one day when Steve King, the abominable congressman from Iowa, yes. said, we can't build our mm -hmm. civilization with someone else's babies. And I, like, I think I might have even said out <laughs> loud to an empty room, we were all someone else's babies. And then I was like, well, where do you come from? And all of a sudden I was like, yeah. well, wait, I know how to find that out. So I went exactly. on history and I worked up. He didn't spring from the forehead of Zeus is what he you're did saying? He not spring from the forehead of Zeus. And even better, I found his grandmother on a ship headed into Ellis Island. Uh, it's been a while now. I don't remember the exact date, but I, I want to say it was early, like 1890s as like a four-year-old. So she was one of those someone else's babies coming from Germany. And apparently they spoke German at home through his grandmother's childhood, et cetera, et cetera. And it just, so I threw it out on Twitter and, but the one that went, so, I, and then I just started doing that as a thing. And at some point I jokingly said, you know, how do I apply to be the official genealogist of the resistance? And that name sort of stuck. And I started calling it resistance genealogy. But the one that sort of went viral and got me a lot of attention was Dan Scavino, who was the White House social media director under Trump, was grumbling one day on Twitter about what the right has unfairly dubbed chain migration, which is a terrible term for a terrible. you know benign practice. That is the way that most American families got here. And all it meant is that families immigrate together. And if a father comes, he can bring his wife and children, et cetera, et cetera. And with a last name like Scavino, I had a feeling that we would not find that he was indigenous. And I had a sneaking suspicion, call me crazy, that Dan Scavino descends from Italian immigrants. And what do you know? I discovered not only does he, in fact, descend from relatively recent Italian immigrants, but the Scavino family turned out to be the poster children for, in fact, the practice known as chain migration. So I sketched all that out and showed how, you know, one brother came and brought the next brother who brought the next two brothers, who brought the sister and the elderly father and the nephew, and then they all lived together in New York. And and that sort of went bonkers viral on Twitter. And, you know, the next thing I knew, I was like hosting Norwegian television crews in my kitchen, um, which was insane. In my previous life, I said I was a journalist and I did a lot of celebrity profiles. And I always remember Trisha Yearwood saying to me that the early years of fame felt like holding on to a runaway train. And the <laughs> early weeks after my silly little tweet went viral, sometimes felt like holding on, holding on to a runaway train because suddenly it was like, you know, you can't even imagine the things that came in, the requests that came in. It was like 
everything. I would like to inspire an art installation based on this, you know, um, can a member of your organization address my group in Los Angeles? And I'm like, it's me in my kitchen in my fuzzy slippers. Like there is no organization. And, you know, like the, the New Yorker talk of a town called like, which was just crazy. It was so, so there you have it. That is the story of resistance genealogy, which has mercifully died down some now that, you know, the, uh, the ones in charge are not so virulently anti-immigrant, but, you know, it's still the need for it pokes up now and again. And I find myself having to do somebody's tree to sort of show them where they came from. I um, think that you were really one of one of the few highlights of the Trump administration for me. Oh, thank because you. It gave me <laughs> it gave me such satisfaction and glee. It would have been one bit better if like Dan Scavino had said, oh my goodness, thank you. And um, it's changed my mind, but I'm a dreamer. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> I got uh, Tommy Lauren at Fox News called me a stalker. You know, they're not Oh, she had a, Tommy Lauren had a really sort of immigrant-like background too, didn't she? Like your family came from Russia. Well, and- they were, um, the Laurens, like her paternal line is... I want to say Norwegian. Actually, another genealogist named Megan Sneliniak is the one who did that line. I traced a different line and they were Volga Germans. So they were ethnic Germans who lived in what is now Ukraine, actually. And the fun thing about that is that I started doing her tree only, I swear on my, you know, (laughs) on, on everything. I really was just curious. She has a German last name. I was just curious how many generations I would go back before I hit an immigrant. And what yeah. I discovered is that her great great grandfather. So I should set the stage by saying, you know, Tommy Lauren, Fox News. Every other word out of out of her mouth is, you know, if you're here illegally, bye bye illegal. America should be for Americans and blah blah blah. And her great-great-grandfather was indicted by a federal grand jury for forging his naturalization <laughs> papers, which seems, you know, I always try very hard to point out he was, in fact, acquitted at trial, but the prosecutions like that were, like, exceedingly rare. I wrote about this, and I have the exact numbers. It was like there there had to be a lot of evidence of malfeasance for charges like that to be brought. And I read the indictment. I ordered it from the National Archives. Um, <laughs> and it was what he was accused of doing is the naturalization process has two parts, and you file the first paperwork, and then there is a closed window of time during which you must file the second part. And it appears, or what he was accused of doing is letting too much time elapse, but then he tried to alter the date on his original paperwork. It said it looked like it had been rubbed out with an eraser so that he didn't, because then you, you, the clock would have to start again. You know, so he, he sort of tried to fudge the rules. But on a serious note, I bring examples like that to light because I think it's very telling that people mm-hmm. often lionize their own ancestors for skirting the rules they talk about pluck and ingenuity and, you know, oh, the official at the, at the port drunk and he let him on the ship and ha ha ha. And here I am. <laughs> and yet they have no tolerance when they see contemporary immigrants who it should be mentioned are far more often immigrants of color doing the same thing. 
And I like to sort of say, well, if it's not really the actions that you are objecting to, what is it that you are objecting to? (laughs) Would you like to spell it out clearly what you are objecting to? (laughs) Exactly. Um, And I, you know, in that same fourth grade unit in school, there was the like, no Irish need apply signs that were in my social studies book. And none of these people have this memory of that, you know, that at one point they weren't wanted either and yet are now welcomed and considered good members of society. Totally. I mean, one of the things I was actually shocked to learn this Actually, Benjamin Franklin, so taking it way back to the 18th century, Benjamin Franklin uh, wrote this long rant talking about the Germans in Pennsylvania and how the Germans in Pennsylvania, he feared, would never Americanize and they would always, you know, stand out and stick to their own ways. And, you know, that was 300 years ago. And here we are still having the same exact debate. I guess I just feel like, you know, so I... Three of my four grandparents were foreign born and my my fourth grandmother was born on the Lower East Side of Manhattan to parents who were relatively recent immigrants themselves. So mm-hmm. I do not have deep roots in this country. And I guess for many, so for me, it's close. I have literally witnessed the assimilation process and the sort of upward mobility that, you know, white European immigrants are afforded in this country. Meaning, you know, my grandfather didn't get here until 1920, or I should go back. My great grandfather on my father's side, he and his wife were both illiterate, I think. And like my Mm -hmm. brother has a PhD from Princeton. It took three generations. And, you know, if we had looked askance at that poor, you know, uh, illiterate shoemaker and his wife who got on that boat at Ellis Island, you know, you would not have. Daniel Mendelssohn, the writer for the New York Review of Books, my brother. Like, it's just so the idea that people forget that. And to go back to what you were just saying, that people forget that we have always shut the door. You know, as soon as we were assimilated, we shut the door and looked down on the next wave. And in my own family, the story that we always used to hear is that, as I told you, I have one American born grandmother and supposedly her sisters were aghast that my grandmother wanted to marry an immigrant and they had been here all of like five minutes. And suddenly it was like, we, we are American. (laughs) And it even carries through. I laughed. My, my mother who just turned 91 yesterday has a first cousin. Thank you. (laughs) Who is sorry. Her birthday was not yesterday. I'm a little tired. Her birthday was over the weekend, Sunday. She has a hundred year old first cousin. And when I first got interested in genealogy and I called her or I told my mom, I had some questions for her cousin, you know, her cousin, Trudy, who lives in Queens. And she, my mother reported that Trudy said, you tell Jennifer that all mothers were born in America. Why does she want to know about Russia? They were born here. They're Americans. So, you know, here it is a hundred years after they were upset. You know, her mother was upset at my grandmother for wanting to marry a greenhorn, she's still pointing out that it's better to have been born in America. So. Right. Still. And like, it has not, other things may have slipped her mind, but that has not slipped her mind even at the age of 100. Yeah. My father came to this country in 1939 because he was lucky and happened to have an uncle here. So he and his parents were able to escape the Holocaust and come here. But to your point, 
thanks to, he then fought in the United States Army during World War II as a very young second lieutenant, and then was had the benefit of the GI Bill. And he went on to have a PhD and become a noted scientist, worked at Bell Laboratories and did this and that sort of innovation in educational psychology. And his father worked in an abattoir and couldn't read. You know, he made brushes or he worked in an abattoir. Those were some of his jobs. And that's the great thing. And, and, and why don't we want people to have that opportunity? As a person whose family had that opportunity, it seems to me cruel that I wouldn't allow other people to have that opportunity. Exactly. That's exactly how I feel. And I should, as you're saying that, I realized, you know, I talked about my, my own family, but in my husband's family, it's even closer. My husband's grandparents were survivors. My mother-in-law and her older brother were born while they were doing forced labor in Russia, um, had fled Poland. They lost all their families and they did not come here until 1950s. You know, that's my husband, my husband's mother. And, you know, my mother-in-law came here at 15 years old, didn't speak a word of English. And, you know, now is a CPA. And I I guess I need to turn my food processor on. Yeah. So this is what we're doing. Everybody who's, you know, listening to the radio version of a food program that talks about politics is right now we need to do some things with the food processor. So there's going to be a little bit of buzzing. We are creaming I'm using farmers, a mixture of farmer's cheese and cottage cheese for my, and are you using just cottage cheese? I went all cottage cheese. I couldn't find farmer cheese. Although it's funny because farmer cheese is one of those things that makes me think of childhood because my Eastern European grandfather used to eat it. So it was like something that we had in the house growing up. Right. And you'd find it at grocery stores near you. And I had to go to like a grocery store that caters to immigrants. <laughs> Mine looks nice and creamy. It's not not completely creamy. It has a little bit of little bit of texture to it, which is okay, um, because you will find that this cheesecake has more texture than most that you're used to, I like your New York cheesecake. The yeah. process of um, pushing the cottage cheese through the sieve was a little bit more um, intensive than I expected. I was like getting a sore arm, and like <laughs> I, it was almost like a workout. But you do exactly. get lovely soft cottage cheese after you do that. You do. Okay, and you can understand why butter. grandma may have had flappy arms, but she was very strong. I don't know about your grandmother. <laughs> I added sugar to mine and I'm going to add the zest of an orange. Although you, some add the zest of a lemon. I think well, I did lemon. all of um, I did lemon before and now I'm going to do orange as a change. I have to, as a sort of, baby food historian have to say, not baby food, but neophyte food historian, the chances that there were lots and lots of oranges in the way back machine in the Ukraine, not so likely, but I think some of these things, you know, modern innovations. So I've added incorporating butter. That's good. And according to, yep. Okay. More noise people. Starting to smell really good. Yeah, it does smell really good. This uh, cheesecake also has a little bit of cornstarch in it, which helps it. And I think in a real Ukrainian one, if you're following a proper recipe, it would have semolina in it, not cornstarch. Before we get into the um, the real weeds, which is going to involve a lot of using of the food processor because this takes four eggs. Let me ask you how. 
what path have you now are you now on? Did it set you on a path? Like where are you now in the world of Jewish genealogy? Have you taken it on as your main focus or what else do you do? I have. I had sort of been looking for a sign. And that sign <laughs> came when suddenly I was like being asked to like go on TV and being interviewed in magazines talking about genealogy. Um, I decided that that was the sign and I took it and ran with it. And I just sort of, I mean, well, I was going to say not much changed. I guess a lot changed because I, I, I had been doing it almost full time, but as a volunteer mm-hmm. and I just sort of stepped it up and started taking clients. I still do some pro bono work, usually involving things like hidden children from the Holocaust who are looking to find out who they are. But I take clients and help them. And I do a lot of speaking and teaching about Jewish genealogy. And I still do some writing. I'm, you know, I'm trying to think I wrote a piece for the Washington Post about why Jewish genealogy is so important to the Jewish community. And I wrote a piece for Time Magazine about the census and why the census is so important to American history and et cetera, et cetera. So I've sort of, it's funny because after so many years as a journalist, I just never realized that genealogy was sort of a perfect distillation of all of my interests and talents because it's basically just reporting and storytelling. And I do a lot of DNA work and that is essentially puzzle solving, which I have adored since I was a kid. <laughs> so it's, it's really fun. And in it's, I've, when I speak, I often tell the story of sort of how I got involved in genealogy and it's um, my very, 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 very first genealogical outing involved my husband's grandmother, who I just told you about, who was a Holocaust survivor who had no family. I mean, she, both of her parents were murdered. All of her siblings were murdered. And like 99% of her aunts, uncles, cousins, second cousins, everybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, she had a first cousin that I knew and like a second cousin, I think. And to make a very long story short, when I right at the very beginning of all of this, I sort of made an offhand comment to her and she let slip that her mother actually had two sisters who came to America before World War I, and she had never been able to find them. And I was just like, oh my God. And I found them and I sat her down two weeks after she told me about them. And I said, you need to sit down. She was 95 years old. She had lost virtually everybody. And I said, mama, you have three living first cousins. And it was like, I've said many times, I I felt like I had like bent the space time continuum. It was like unbelievable. And so what I'm getting at is I get to do all this, you know, fun reporting, puzzle solving, researching, you know, storytelling. But at the end, there is like this fundamentally satisfying payoff when you can deliver long lost first cousins to a 95-year-old Holocaust survivor. I mean, it's kind of great. And then maybe not coincidentally, I would possibly not be having this conversation with you today as a genealogist had not. I wrote a magazine article about this experience, which was wondrous of finding her family after 70 years. And after that story ran, 
a friend of the family reached out and said, I read the article. I'm so excited for you. I'm wondering if you can help us. And I was like, help you with what? And she said, well, my father was adopted. I don't know if you know that. And I said, no, I had no idea. She said, we were given a little bit of information about his birth family by the adoption agency. And this is, he was in his eighties at this point. He was born in 1928 in Brooklyn. And she said, you seem to know how to do genealogical research. Maybe you could try to find them. And, you know, flush with one success under my belt. I was like, sure, (laughs) I'll find your birth family. But I did it again. And it turned out that he had two half sisters who were completely stunned. I mean, when we finally found them, the sister sort of said quietly, I had always heard something about a baby. Like they sort of knew something maybe that their mother had placed a child for adoption. And they said to me, this has completely changed our lives. And I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Like, it's just, it's, you know, and it's just built from, I mean, some of the cases I've worked on have been you would not believe. And the, you know, to be able to sort of use this talent for to help people is really great. So it, you know, it really is as close as we can get to um, actual ghosts being real. Yeah. I think in a very sort of strange, I don't mean to be like all strange and um, a little, you know, tutti frutti about it, but in our heads, we have this image and these thoughts about all of our ancestors that we know nothing about. And all of a sudden, when you bring a face to a name or even a name to a space that's just grandpa or great grandpa, suddenly a whole new world comes alive to you, a whole new way of thinking about yourself. I can't imagine what it's like to be 85 years old and discover that you have siblings or for them to discover it. What, were they both siblings were alive, both half siblings were alive? Mm-hmm. They were much. Why, why do I feel um, the mother had had him as a teenager, and then later gone on to get married? And she, these were the daughters from her marriage. In a funny turn of events, just in the last couple months, so this was this was in 2013, so nine years ago, and I made clear to him at the time that if he were interested in pursuing his birth father, to whom I mean, no one knew who she, who he was we could do it. You can do it using DNA. And he did not seem interested and I never pushed. So we let it go. And then just recently, he kind of came back around. And in the last maybe month or two, I have identified his biological father. That is fascinating. How did he take it? Was there any, did he try to connect with the family? Not yet. And unfortunately, he has not, he has not been um, well lately. So this has sort of been tabled, but it's kind of a long and complicated story. And with DNA, when it comes down to brothers, it can be difficult to, unless you have one of their children test, it can be difficult to determine just from DNA results, which of two brothers is the father. And of course, Murphy's Law, the family that I identified (laughs) as his family of origin, I think there were eight sons. (laughs) Oh my um, gosh, okay. But I was able to sort of rule some of them out because, you know, they would have only been eight years old and or whatever. And there's also, there's this really cool tool that you can use that where you sort of put in the amounts of DNA that your target person shares with various members of a family and it will spit out probabilities. And there's one of the brothers whose probability index is like way higher than the others. And of course, he worked in the very industry that the birth mother worked in. 
which sort of puts them um, in the same place at the same time. So he he did not, we weren't quite ready to make contact or anything like that yet, but and maybe when he's feeling better, he will, or maybe his children will want to know at some point, but it was, you know, but I, I like to evangelize for people that it really is possible to use DNA to crack mysteries that people think are completely impenetrable, whether it's foundlings, adoptees, you know, switched at birth babies, it's, it's, it, you really can get further. You talked about um, hidden children before, and I think we're going to um, add the eggs to this. And then okay. in a sense, after these messages um, or after these whirrings of the Cuisinart, we're going to, I'd like to talk about hidden children and also how much Jewish genealogy has changed in the sense that they're much more access to data and information than we would have thought there is and was, wasn't it? Yeah. So um, let's add our four eggs. My grandmother, well, famously made cheesecake and um, also smoked. I mean, truly one of the world's most elegant women, right? A Park Avenue socialite sort of woman. And yet she had to learn to cook, right? Because no more didn't have help around the place and would, was famous for her cheesecake. And my mother brought me some home ones after dinner. And I was like, what is that? And there was this ash from her cigarette that was like laying across the cheesecake. And it was not oh, meant to be. It was just, she always walked around with a cigarette in her mouth and it was sort of, she didn't, they were like the ash, the ash, but they left it for me to see. And now I can't get it out of my mind. My grandma Zeman, who we called Grandma Zeman by her last name, um, made cheesecake and uh, some other things that she learned to make when she got into French cooking. But I have her like matzo brai recipes and her Charlotte recipe, matzo Charlotte recipes and things like that. But my grandma Jenny, who I think was probably the better cook, um, only ever made me Wiener Schnitzel. But believe me, that is a warm, warm Wiener Schnitzel and Kukumasalat as we would call it. That's definitely an Eastern European thing because my, so unfortunately I, um, my grandmother who was the sort of quintessential Jewish bubby and cooked um, died before <laughs> I was born. So I never got to know her, but my other grandmother who was completely like the opposite of a Jewish grandmother who she like, smoked and bet and loved baseball. And my grandfather apparently did all the domestic work. Um, the only thing she made was cucumber she sounds salad. like a um, really cucumber, like pickled cucumbers with dill, which was so interesting because she's from Krakow, Poland. And when my brothers and I went back to Poland and Ukraine, there was dill in everything. Dill. Like it was like, and all of a sudden it was like, aha, this is where I come from. Yeah, that dill is on everything in 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 that in that food. I love um, dill. Yeah, and my my grandmother's cucumber salad was just cucumbers, salt, white vinegar, and a, some paprika on top to make it pretty. Yeah, she was from Hungary, so or Austro-Hungary. Okay, we need to talk about hidden children and how you find how you figure out finding people when you don't really know anything about them. And yeah, let's, uh, let's have a quick, can you tell me a little bit about the process? You can use commercial DNA testing 
And the way that I try to explain it to non-genealogists is, so one thing that many people don't realize if you haven't DNA tested, actually some people who have DNA tested don't even realize, they think that all DNA testing does is give you that pie chart to tell you that, you know, you're 25% Korean and, you know, 14% Italian and whatever. For genealogists, the most important part of DNA testing is not that ethnicity estimate. It's that you get a list of people with whom you share DNA ranked in order of the amount of DNA they share with you. And that's important because the more DNA you share, the closer the relative you are. So what we do in these cases where, um, like I worked on the case of a woman who uh, was found in an orphanage in Poland after the war. She had no idea where she had come from. There was no paper trail on her. She was like two or three years old. She didn't know her name. She didn't know who her parents was or, or where she had come from. And she lived her entire life. She was brought to Israel. She grew up on a kibbutz. She was never adopted. She lived her entire life up until she died five or six years ago, never having any idea where who she really was or where she had come from. But before she died, a kind neighbor had given her the gift of a DNA kit. And she also had a daughter who we were able to test and using their results over the process of a very intense, I think it might've been a year because I don't, I don't have time to just like work on these cases all the time, but we basically reverse engineer a family tree based on the trees of the people that you match with. So if you, you know, like ideally ideal world, this happens once in a blue moon, you know, you don't know who you are and you take a DNA test and you get a parent-child match. Well, there's your answer. (laughs) This person is either your mother or your father. There aren't that many options. You might get a match that is a half-sibling match. And then you say, oh, well, we share one parent. Is that our father or our mother? That's easy to figure out. So there's your, then it starts to get harder and harder. You might have a first cousin match. So then you say, well, I share a set of grandparents with this person. Is it their mother's parents or their father's parents? And it's a whole sort of jigsaw puzzle-esque process. In the case of the Holocaust orphan, we actually had one good match, but that woman was the child of survivors and like all of her aunts and uncles had died and cousins. So it was very hard to piece together the story. Um, But Uh eventually we were able to do it. And the most heartbreaking thing of the whole thing, it's incredibly bittersweet. We were able to reunite her daughter with her birth family, but I had sort of gone through this entire process, assuming that we were going to learn that she was the product of some, you know, wartime illicit affair between two people who had never married. And that's why she was in an orphanage or her parents had died or, and it turned out that she was actually the product of a very loving and intact family. And she had been separated from them during the chaos of war. And they actually, they lost another child um, who was killed in one of the ghettos but her parents lived and went to Israel and actually lived not terribly far away from her. And they lived like, I think her mother died in the seventies, her father died in the nineties. So it was horrible. But the happy part was that we were able to reunite her daughter with her two aunts who were still alive. Unfortunately, one then um, passed away, but 
And they were able to know that their missing sister had been found and see pictures of her and et cetera, et cetera. So I knew at some point you were going to make me cry and that did it. So good for you. I mean, that's what, 25, 30 minutes into this. It's just, just tremendous um, how DNA has changed the process. But you were also, when I was talking to you before, you were talking because you just have been working, uh, you did um, a fundraiser over the weekend about Ukrainian Jewish genealogy. And you yes. told me about someone who was going into all the towns and, and going into the records of uh, places and scanning the genealogy that was there or scanning like the yes. town's notes, you know, yeah. records, I think is the word we use. And who is this? And, and in my lifetime, I, I watched my father be able to not search for people to like being able to look up things online. So how has that changed? One of the things I found satisfying about becoming a genealogist was I had always sort of had a love of debunking and getting to the bottom of things that were widely believed, but were not true. And that's a huge part of genealogy. And one of my favorite, like very favorite myths to debunk is there is this widespread misunderstanding in the uh, Jewish community that the quote, Nazis destroyed all the records. People Mm -hmm. believe that if your people immigrated from Eastern Europe, you know, in the 19th or 20th centuries, there's just no point in looking because there's nothing to be found and nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, I have records. I took one client back to her eighth great grandfather. I think like there are, okay, caveat. They destroyed some records. There are places in fact, where you are out of luck, you know, one of my great grandfathers is from one of those towns where there's there there's some, but not a lot. But like my grandfather's birth certificate, I could bring it up right now on the, my computer. It's like on the Polish Archives website. You don't have to pay to see it. You know, you just have to know where to look. So there's also sort of a a, a corollary myth where people think that these towns that were from don't exist anymore. You know, they think that like, I don't know, like Brigadoon, they just rose when our grandfathers (laughs) lived there and then they sunk back under or they were destroyed during the war. And, you know, and like, that's not true either. I have stood in the town where my grandfather came from. It is still there. You can, you know, you can drive there and see it. And I have stood on my family's property there. And, you know, so I love... I feel like there is such a special imperative in a community like ours that has been so devastated by dislocation and genocide and not just the Shoah or that because that's the most obvious one, but, you know, repeated eras of pogroms and violence and dislocation and people always on the run, et cetera, et cetera. And the idea that you really can connect backwards and know more and learn more and discover. I mean, one of my favorite discoveries was uh, one of my great grandmothers, the mother of my American born grandmother. We were told that she was orphaned in a pogrom and that she came to America all by herself as a teenager. The age of her arrival varies on who you're asking. I think 100-year-old cousin Trudy said she was 13 or 14. I think she was more like 18 or 19. 
but that was the story. She didn't have a brother. She didn't have a sister. She didn't have a cousin. And that was it. And my grandmother grew up. She never had relatives on that side. And that was the whole story. And I took a DNA test and got what seemed like a promising DNA match to a guy with her surname. And one thing led to another, led to another. And then I got a second really promising DNA match to someone who had her surname in their family. And to make a long story short, Bobby, who was orphaned in the pogrom and had no family, actually had a brother in Brooklyn and a sister in New Jersey. And either she legitimately didn't know that they were there or she lied and she would not be the very first person ever to have told a story about herself that the document trail has since proven false. But but the event we did this weekend was very much in keeping with that ethos of trying to, you know, urge people to search because it really is knowable. So when Russia invaded Ukraine, we my genealogy friends and I, namely Lara Diamond, Tammy Haps, and Brooke Schreier Gans all noticed that there was a noticeable uptick in sort of the online genealogy community of Jewish Americans all of a sudden very interested in their Ukrainian roots. Oh, Ukraine. I'm yeah. pretty sure my family is from Ukraine. Or I think my grandma once told me, or how do I know if I have a connection to Ukraine? So Tammy had the brilliant idea that we should do a benefit and teach sort of an afternoon seminar on Jewish history and Jewish genealogy, i.e., yes, you really can find out where Bubby was from and learn more about the town and its people and its history and the records and trace your family back. And and we we got a very generous, lovely offer from the New York Genealogical and Biographical <laughs> Society to host it for us. And we raised over $26,000 to be sent to charities doing humanitarian aid on the ground. And to bring it full circle, your question about the guy, the rogue guy with the scanner, <laughs> his name is Alex Krakowski, and he is a young Ukrainian man in his 30s with distant Jewish ancestry himself, actually. And he, for the last few years, has sort of become the Robin Hood of Jewish genealogy because he just goes into these archives in Ukraine, many of which have hundreds of thousands of Jewish records just sitting there. And he goes with a scanner and he scans them and he throws them up on a Wikipedia page for free where they are accessible to anyone. And he actually joined the Zoom. And you, he's like, you have to understand, he's like the equivalent of a rock star for genealogy because people are just so in awe of him. And of course, we've been so worried about him and his family ever since all this started. So he made an appearance, which was lovely. Us folks at home can still donate money, right? To yes, and I'll I believe, put them up. I, I'll yeah, post them in Twitter and I'll also post them in the, in the link to this podcast. So I will. Okay. Um, it's I don't think the Ukraine. link is going to be up forever. So depending on when you're okay. hearing this, it may or may not be. But we'll try to. And if you donate, you will get a link to view the recording, and you can watch at your leisure. It was it five hours, so you know might not. You might want to do it in small doses, but um, <laughs> yeah. But I think those of us who are interested are happy to listen to five hours of it because there's so much, you know, that we don't know, right? right. From my father, he went back to the village in Poland, which is now Poland, which was then Austro-Hungary. And 
walked around and said, hey, yeah, my family was from here. He's Jewish. Does anybody know anything about them? And basically got the answer from everybody he would meet. Oh, no, there were never any Jews here. No, 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 no. And it turned out that they'd taken all of the tombstones and lined the sewers with them and for the, from the Jewish cemetery. And finally, oh. somebody toward the end of his time in the town was like, look, honey, I'll tell you a little something. And then, you know, let them know, let him know a little bit about where and what happened to the Jews in the town, which followed. My experience is very similar. Right. My relatives were also from the, a town which um, I don't pronounce well in the original Polish, so I pronounce it in the German, which is Auschwitz, which is an unfortunate town to be from if you're Jewish. Um, um, you know whose family is from there? These are the sort of random trivia things you know <laughs> when you're a Jewish genealogist. Wolf Blitzer. Really? Maybe Wolf Blitzer's family maybe. is from Auschwitzum. Auschwitzum, yeah. yeah. And maybe... Maybe he knew my po- my Polish is horrible. Apologies to everybody out there. Yeah, but. yeah. Apologies to every Polish person um, out there. Fascinating. I'll have to reach out to Mr. Blitzer once I figure out who all the relatives were that were there. Tell me if you can. What is the Polish website where people can go and look up records of the Jews there? Do you know it off the uh, top of your head? Well. <laughs> Yes and no, because Poland was many different things at many different times. So depending on specifically where you're talking about, there's many different places you can go to. But the main repository for Jewish records from Poland is a site called JRI Poland, Jewish Records Indexing mm-hmm. Poland. So it's jri-poland.org. For specifically the area that you're talking about, which is the uh, former Austro-Hungarian province of Galicia. parts of which are currently in Poland, Eastern Poland, and parts of which are currently in Western Ukraine. That's where my grandfather was from, actually, actually two of my grandparents. There's an additional site called Gesher Galicia, G-E-S-H-E-R-G-A-L-I-C-I-A.org that has a lot of records from that area. But neither of those is comprehensive. Like some places, you know, they have some, but the town you need, you may need to contact an archive, but that's a great place to start for Poland, but that all that JRI Poland does not just cover Galicia, it covers um, like what was called Congress Poland, which is the parts of Poland that were part of the Russian Empire. But like there's also parts of Poland that were once Lithuania. It's very complicated. Border changing is complicated. But one thing, and I talked about this at length in our webinar, there's a great tool on the website Jewish Gen, which is the sort of main hub for Jewish genealogy on the internet. And, and they have something called the Town Finder. And if you think your people were from some shtetl that you heard your grandparents say, but you think it sounds something like Schlups, which is actually the name <laughs> of the fake shtetl in Seth Rogen's movie, American Pickle you can go and put in sounds like schlups and it will tell you, you know, oh, there's a schlups Hungary and there's a, you know, Schlapuski Poland and, or it might be, you know, Schlapsk, which is in Romania. And based on context clues and various documents that you can easily find like naturalization papers or draft registration, you can zero in on your schlups because many of these records that we have, there's, Spelling is mangled, transliteration is mangled, um, transcription is mangled, meaning what it says on the document is not properly 
you know, put into an electronic database. So when you search, you are only searching the bad transcriptions. And if you search by what you know, you will not find it because, you know, Schlupf's has been transliterated as, you know, Shegawawa. And if you're, <laughs> unless you're searching for Shegawawa, it's not going to come up. So you have to get really, really crafty. Right. And your aunt pronounced it Schlupsk and your grandpa pronounced it Schlepsk and nobody knows at this point, it, right? Well, the great thing about the town founder on Jewish Gen is it gives you the pronunciation in like eight languages. So, That's you know, brilliant. it will give That's you brilliant. the pronunciation in Yiddish, Russian, Polish, you know, because all of these places, you know, so many people have a joke similar to mine. My grandfather used to say we used to wake up in the morning and ask what country we lived in because the borders <laughs> changed so often. So the town, depending on and depending on the year, because, you know, in, in 1900, it was part of X country and they spoke whatever. And in 1930, it was a different country and they spoke a different language. So you need to know all of that. And, but I just, I really want to get across the point that there is no, there is no need to sort of shrug your shoulders and say they were from somewhere in Russia, but we'll never know. And people always say, everyone who would have known anything, you know, is long gone. Who am I going to ask? You know, and the great thing is that even if they didn't tell you, they told the government. (laughs) Because the American <laughs> government collected information in all sorts of ways, from census documents to naturalization papers to alien registration forms to draft registrations to I have found voter registration lists that tell you, you know, a person's place of birth and what court they naturalized in. So like there really is a trail that you can follow and you can get all sorts of great information. I found passport applications. Before there were photographs. And so it was like, oh, he has a lean, long nose and beautiful (laughs) and, you know, and and round brown eyes. You know, I can do my own like court reporting from it. I don't know. Quick word um, on a more modern topic, vaguely more modern from the scheme of things. And then I think we probably have to go. Otherwise, we'll be here forever. And I would love to have you back. I put Uh, my cheesecake in the oven. I feel like I need to report that. Um, Yeah, my cheesecake is in the oven, too. The one tip about this cheesecake is because you're not cooking it in a water bath or anything like that, all the recommendations and all the different Ukrainian recipes that I looked at for this one say when it's done, turn off the oven, open the oven door, and let it sit there to cool down for a while before you pop okay. it out. And then once it's fully cooled, wrap it and put it in the refrigerator. The idea is that you then the next day invert it and coat it in the ganache chocolate ganache if you're feeling because they're going to be upset that we also, can't eat it tonight sorry guys i'm sure they could sliver on pieces it just won't be as good <laughs> that's definitely what my kids would do if they would eat it but now that it has raisins in it there's not a chance in 53 words or less why is everybody making a big deal about the 1950 census being oh. available now well why is everyone making a big deal about the 1950 census? Because in America, we take a census every 10 years, starting in 1790. But we have a law that those censuses only become public 72 years after they are taken. So we have waited with bated breath for the release of the 1950 census, which became available on April 1st of this year. And I like to say it's kind of like the 
skeletal backbone for genealogy because it's just this great repository of, it's like a snapshot in time of what people were doing, where and when. And it just has all sorts of cool demographic information about, you know, whether it's your family you want to look up. Some of us on Twitter have had fun looking up various celebrities and what they were doing in the 1950 <laughs> census. I found Dolly Parton as a little girl living with her family in, in Tennessee. I found Frank Sinatra living with his wife and children and a full staff of like butler, <laughs> nurse, doctor, you know, driver living in Beverly Hills. And, you know, I found my mom as a 19-year-old college student living at home in the Bronx. But there's all sorts of information about how old people, how much money they make, where they're from. In various years, you were asked to say where your parents were born. In various years, uh, women were asked to say how many children they'd given birth to and how many were living. So it's just this incredibly rich repository of questions and answers about America. But as I wrote, a couple of years ago about this in Time Magazine, it's also sort of painful to look at what information was not collected um, because the questions we ask, I remember my, my uh, friend Rich, uh, I quoted him in that piece saying that what's unasked is unheard. So the things that are not asked about, we don't see. And as some people may know, one of the most painful pieces of census data is that when slavery was still legal in America, there was a sort of second census taken in those years called the slave schedule. And on those documents, enslaved people were enumerated, but they were not named. It would just be, you know, Black female, 27 years old, Black male, three years old. And they were listed under the master, the slave owner's name. And they weren't even identified because they weren't treated as human. And to actually see that on the page is incredibly distressing. Um, so things like that, it's a, it's a mixed bag. You know, but you can sort of track your family across time. I mean, I, I have had the privilege of, although I actually have yet, I mean, it's only been a few days and it's not name searchable yet that takes several months before that process is fully done so you can't like just put in your grandmother's name and find her yet eventually you will be able to do that but right now you have to know where they were living so i can't find my father he's not with his parents at the oh. address that he should be his brother is there but he is not so i don't know where he is but um i have been able to track my grandfather through um so my grandfather was born in 1890 in latvia he arrived in the U.S. in 1892, the first year that Ellis Island was open. And I have I have located him in every single census, sort of watching his upward mobility from a little boy on the Lower East Side of Manhattan in 1900 to a young man in 1910 to a married father in 1920 to, you know, 1930, 1940. And now we'll have him in 1950. And, you know, hopefully I'll be around for the release of a few more censuses. And, you know, I, I won't see myself until 1970. So 20 more years. Me too. <laughs> I also um, poked around one fun thing that people can do, even if you don't have family to search, I poked around my current neighborhood in 1950, just sort of looking at what of sorts of course. people lived on my street. And I, I, once again, I haven't located my address, but I found like the people across the street and it's just kind of cool to sort of 
you know, it's like sort of like being a drone and you kind of like, you know, fly around and, and see what was going on and what, you know, what were people doing and what sorts of occupations did people have? And I was joking that I saw, you know, I look at the census 95 million hours a week of for various <laughs> years. And I think perusing 1950, I saw my very first, I think, Jennifer, like there was a little girl named Jennifer a baby in the 1950 census. And all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, I don't think I've ever seen a Jennifer in the census. And so it's like all these cultural touchstones you can kind of right. track. That was way more Micro- than 53 words. I'm sorry. But it was really, really worth listening to every single word. My grandmother, just as a sort of rounding out the note, was named Jenny, but not Jennifer. Right. Well, as I just explained <laughs> to someone on Twitter, many Jewish immigrant Jennies um, many, not all, were Scheindels. That's a Yiddish name. And mm-hmm. Jenny, for whatever reason, many Scheindels adopted Jenny as their American name. So you do see it a lot in 1900, 1910, 1920, but they're not Jennifer's. Jennifer was definitely a not Eastern European phenomenon. Jenny, I think, was a true Jenny because she was from Schopron, a part of Hungary that was very close to Austria. And I think Hungary, you know, there's the name. Yenner and Yen. So I think she might have been the female form of that. But you know what? It's a guess. All of her family had names like Rudolph. You know, like I have a relative named Rudolph Hess, but it's not the bad one. Well, maybe bringing everything full circle, we can now, those records for Grandma Jenny's birth might be online. You can actually see what it says on her birth certificate. That is possible to know. That's and fantastic. you can see what name she emigrated under and you can see et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I have seen her emigration. And the part that sort of stunned us all was when we, and this is a point that you can um, confirm, confirm or deny. Um, when you look at the immigration papers, i suddenly went, but my father's middle name was Israel. And then you look and you go, wait, his father's name was Israel. And oh, my grandmother's middle name was Sarah. And I know where this is going. (laughs) So where is this going? Right. That's do you know or you don't know? I do know. I mean, it was okay. Wasn't it just that was how they identified them as Jewish? Yeah, that was the law that became the law in Nazi Germany that all Jews had to adopt. Women had to adopt the middle name Sarah, and all men had to adopt the middle name Israel. That was a bit of a shock, but that's why it's important to know the history that goes along with the um your relative i thank you so much for being here i have a feeling that every single person who's listening to this i hope one might try the ukrainian cheesecake two will definitely donate money to the causes that you mentioned i will put them up for people to find and also i have a strong feeling that everybody will listen to this and go straight to ancestry.com or jri (laughs) poland.org and it's suddenly going to be nosing around to see what they can find and i hope some mysteries are solved. It's incredible because it's so sometimes people are know nothing. And in like an hour, you can find out something unbelievable that nobody ever knew. Like sometimes it's just not even hard. It's like, it's just below the surface and it can be so cool and eye-opening. Thank you so much. My goal is to find my grandfather's sister's name, which we haven't found yet. They were from um, Grodzisko and apparently they're 95. No, like It was like the Springfield of Poland to be from Grodzisko. Mm. There are a number of them. So we'll see. Anyway, thank you very much. Thank you very, very much. And keep us up to date on what you find. 
Thank you to Jennifer Mendelson for being my guest. Please consider donating to Razom for Ukraine and the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee to help the people of Ukraine. If you're looking for the recipe for the cheesecake, you can find it on my Substack, marissarothkopf.substack.com. Stay safe and wash your hands. See you next week. Bye.